Where do you want to live? You probably wouldn't choose the blustery northwest coast of Wales for the weather. It rains twice as much as it does, say, in London. Uh, the wind blows constantly. It is so beautiful, but it doesn't do you many favors. So if you live there, you've got to want to live there, and that's a great social cement. We'll get a sense of what a good day feels like in Bosnia-Herzegovina. When you sit somewhere outside in a beautiful sunny day, you know, and you've done all you need to do, and you're drinking your Bosnian coffee and having a cigarette, that's all there is. And we'll enjoy the spectacular art of Spain, from groundbreaking works by Picasso and Dali to the people immortalized by Velázquez. He was a person who really thought that everyone deserved a portrait, ordinary people like you and me. Come along as we explore the visual arts of Spain and what it means to be Bosnian and Welsh in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The ruins of castles and mining operations are evidence of the one-time might of the kings and industrial barons of Wales. Today's Wales is a mostly quiet part of Britain, with its own brand of Gaelic identity that hasn't faded away over the years. Coming up in the hour ahead, Martin Delandovitz tells us what it means to him to be a proud Welshman today. And guides from Bosnia-Herzegovina share how their complicated ethnic heritage contributes to what it means to be Bosnian today. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves with an introduction to the great art you can see all over Spain. Works by painters and architects who invented significant new ways of seeing the world, and of which the Spanish are rightfully proud. Madrid-based tour guide Federico Garcia Barroso is back with us right now to help us appreciate the visual art treasures of Spain. He's joined by Gene Openshaw, who co-authors the Rick Steves Europe 101 Art and History Guide. They'll take your calls at 877-333-RICK and by email we're at radio at ricksteves.com. Federico and Jean, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Hola. Hola. So Jean, how would, you, how would you tackle appreciating the art of Spain? I would certainly hit the top ones. Just think about the Prado Museum in Madrid, arguably Europe's greatest painting museum. Mm -hmm. Also in Madrid, Picasso's Guernica, a monster painting that not only is a testament against modern warfare, but is so much part of the Spanish history with its horses and bulls and weeping women imagery and gets right to the heart of Spain's civil war. I'd certainly put on that list the Alhambra in Granada. This is 700 years of Muslim settlement in Spain. We think of this great Catholic country, but for 700 years it was Muslim. And this lush Arabian Nights wonderland is the best place to appreciate that. And finally, I'd say Gaudi's cathedral, unfinished cathedral of Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. This kind of gives the, the grandeur of Spanish dreams in this cake-melting-in-the-rain sort of architecture with these soaring towers that's become very much the symbol of the city of Barcelona. So there's four art treasures that could hold their own against art treasures anywhere in Europe, I would say. Federico, when we're thinking of the Prado, Jean mentioned it's got an incredible uh, wealth of paintings. Um, I would call it my favorite collection of paintings in all of Europe. Why would Madrid have so many art treasures? The reason, the, the capital of the Spanish Empire. It's an example of how important Spain was in the past. Exactly. That's, that is actually the best way to make our legacy tangible, you see, to see the, the history of Spain is right there in that museum. A lot of famous Flemish paintings mm -hmm. are in Spain. 
obviously, yeah. because the Netherlands was actually a Spanish colony a long time ago, yeah. Now, Jean mentioned the Guernica, uh, this incredible painting by Picasso. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, the painting of, of Europe, when you talk about the mm-hmm. struggles of the 20th century, when you, in your city mm-hmm. of Madrid, think of the importance of Guernica to the Spanish people, what is it? The reason why Guernica is actually located in Madrid is because Picasso was the curator of the Prado Museum in those travel years during the Spanish Civil War. And uh, that is obviously his cubist interpretation about the Spanish Civil War. For many years, that painting was actually in exile. It wasn't even in Spain. It was in New York City. And that's because Picasso insisted that that painting, which was so much against the current government of Spain, Francisco Franco, he, he would not allow his painting to be in a Franco-ruled Spain. And it wasn't until Franco finally died and a new democratic regime came in that that painting could be repatriated and brought back to its homeland. So Franco dies in 1975. Mm-hmm. Did Picasso live to see that? Oh, it's a solid story. He died two years before. He died two years before his painting went back to his homeland. Federico, when you go to a gallery in Spain and you want to appreciate Catholic Spain, mm-hmm. what's some advice in that regard? Well, we have a, a master called Velázquez, and then we have to remember that we also have other painters like Murillo, Zurbarán, and Rivera. And those are actually the, the, the painters. That in most of the cases, we are talking about the voted men who really, really were deep believers, you see, and they Catholic people who really wanted to show to you the beauty of Mary, the Immaculate Conception. Gina, is, is most of this part of the Counter-Reformation sort of propaganda art for the Church? Yes, it is. I mean, if you think about that big watershed time in Spain's history, 1492, not only did Columbus sail the ocean blue, but it was also the time when Muslim occupation ended. It was the time when the Jews were exiled. And suddenly you had a nation state that was under Catholic kings and it became ultra Catholic. Madrid based tour guide Federico Garcia Barroso and art historian Jean Openshaw are introducing us to the great visual arts of Spain right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425, and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. And Mandy has emailed us from Morgantown in West Virginia, and Mandy writes, As a recent graduate with my bachelor and master degrees in art history, I was thrilled to visit Madrid and Barcelona a few years ago during a backpacking trip around Europe. One of my most memorable moments was viewing Diego Velázquez's Las Meninas at the Prado Museum in Madrid, and then going to the Picasso Museum in Barcelona, viewing 44 interpretations of that same Velázquez work that Picasso painted. That's a great moment, isn't it? First of all, Jean, I think Las Meninas is considered by some people to be the greatest painting ever. What is it about Las Meninas and Velázquez? Las Meninas, you know, some people may not know it by its title, but when you see it, you go, oh, that painting, yeah, that right. painting. It's that one where there's a, a little princess being attended by her courtiers and there's people in the background and so on. And the very fact that Velázquez could capture a single moment without giving that sense of these people posing for it, that was groundbreaking in art, a certain naturalness that we now take for granted, but that at the time was completely unprecedented. And Velázquez could have just earned his pay as painting the, the, the royal family looking good, but he really took it farther, capturing those intimate moments. Uh, Velázquez was an extraordinary human being. He was a really wonderful man and very ethical person who really thought that everyone deserved a portrait ordinary people like you and me, not exclusively kings and queens. And we can see that in those meninas. I really tell people that that, is a, that was a 3D movie in those days. <laughs> yeah. You see, because yeah. you are part of the story. You oh, are yeah. there. And those people, those characters, they know that you are there. They're watching you. You're watching them. 
I remember there was a time when there was um, a rope banister in front of it. It was almost like they had to remind people not to walk into it. Like, <laughs> like people put a decal on a sliding glass door, you know, so you don't walk into it. Thomas is on the phone in Colorado Springs. Thomas, thanks for your call. Well, thanks for having me uh, on, Rick. My family and I uh, had an opportunity to visit uh, northern Spain and went to the small city of Comillas, Spain, along the uh, northern coastline, and had a chance to see an Antonio Gaudi home. And, of course, Gaudi's known for all of his structures uh, and architecture, but really in Barcelona, especially with the cathedral there. We just uh, fell in love with the small uh, home there in Comillas that uh, we weren't even familiar with. And so my, my question really is, what other hidden gems of architecture or art that we should be made aware of that are uh, hidden and dispersed throughout the uh, country of Spain? I'm going to give that question to Federico Barroso because... I am challenged in Spain just by the the marketing difficulty that some architects will have just by how do you say their name. We can say Gaudi. Mm-hmm. In the Art Nouveau movement, there were other artists Two. that should be household names, but I just think there's a practical reason there. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm wondering, are there other architects outside of that era from Spain that, that Federico would like to share? Federico, what's your take on that? Well, actually, when Gaudi is, oh, I can see that you discover... Uh, Capriccio, the Capriccio at Comillas, because Gaudí was mostly sponsored by the Catalan nobility, and then we occasionally find some of his buildings in other places like León, Astorga, occasionally some small towns in northern Spain. Uh, Gaudí is the most emblematic one. We have to consider that in those 1800s, Spain had a big social, political, and economical decline, and the only people who really did something new, those transgressors, were Gaudí and his two friends, Pucci Cadafalc and Domenech Montaner, Complicated names. We usually call them Gaudí and his two friends. <laughs> even in Spain? Yeah, even in Spain. Oh, yeah. that makes me feel much better. And Federico, are there other great architects that we should know? I... We have actually, just an example in Madrid, Antonio Palacios. Antonio Palacios is, is the man who is making extraordinary buildings in Madrid. We find the Fine Arts Circle, El Círculo de Bellas Artes. It's actually the best panoramic tower in Madrid, by the way. And then we find in the top of the tower Minerva, or Athena, the goddess of wisdom. So this is a modern architecture. It's a modern architecture, actually, that is from the beginning of the 1900s. You know, I love that. In Madrid, you can take a public bus from the Prado, mm-hmm. and you can go see a lot of the great skyscrapers and modern art, which exactly. needs to be looked at also. And can sure. I add uh, the man that is perhaps the best known outside of Spain mm-hmm. right now as an architect, Santiago Calatrava. Mm-hmm. Now, People may not know his name, but if you're driving through Europe, you're going to go over his bridges. If you're traveling on a train, you're going to go through his railway stations that he's designed. And his work is these soaring roof lines and these, and his bridges are almost like ships with a mast and rigging and sails. And it kind of reminds you in some ways of uh, Spain's maritime heritage as they sail into the future. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been joined by Gene Openshaw, the co-author of the Rick Steves Europe 101 Art for Travelers Guidebook, and Federico Garcia Barroso, who's a guide who comes to us from Madrid. Gene, one last tip for anybody going to Spain to, to just get a little better connected with that Spanish creative spirit. Let's take the, um, the Dali Museum. Salvador Dali, of course, was Spanish. And the Dali Museum is a place not too many people get to, but it's easy to. It's just a short train ride out of Barcelona in the town of Figueres, which is where he was born. And it's just what you may expect, a surreal experience. You walk through and you see some of his paintings and some of his creations. You can see a... Uh, a couch that looks like Marilyn Monroe's lips. You can see, uh, you know, fruit stacked atop a column. 
It is a surreal experience. It's fun. Anyone can appreciate it. And I think it's, uh, to me, Spanish art is hard to categorize because there's so much to it. And in a way, Dali, with his surrealistic juxtaposition of images, took so many of the elements of Spanish culture, threw them in a blender, and then splattered them on the canvas. And I think that's a great way to appreciate the many layers of Spanish art. The Dali Museum outside of Barcelona in Figueres. In the town of Figueres. Federico, what would your tip be for making sure people get a little better appreciation of the Spanish creative spirit? I want to share with my friends that little chapel located in Madrid next to the river, a place called San Antonio de la Florida, where we find those frescoes by Goya, something quite unusual, really unique. Before he became a royal painter, working exclusively for the royal family in the royal palace, he painted those frescoes. He left us a gem, and it's just a little secret that we have there in Madrid for those people that already know Goya inside the Prado Museum, that they go outside and they find that those magic frescoes by uh, Goya. Frescoes in a sort of ensemble. Oh, yeah, yeah, in ensemble. And that's the beautiful thing. It's sort of uh, in situ, this ensemble, you appreciate the mastery of Goya. Jean and Federico, gracias. 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 March 1st is St. David's Day, honoring the patron saint of Wales. Martin Delandovitz would politely suggest that it ought to be a bank holiday, too. He joins us next to take your calls on travel to Wales and help us all get a better appreciation of what it means to be Welsh. We'll also explore what it means to be Bosnian in just a bit. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I have a certain affinity for Celtic cultures. To me, they're sort of like underdogs. I guess it goes all the way back to the the Dark Ages when the Angles and the Saxons came over from Europe and invaded Britain, and they pushed the people who lived there to the undesirable fringes of that island and and the Angles settled in what became Angleland, England and, and the Celtic people, well, they live in the fringes up in Scotland, over in Ireland and Wales. The Welsh culture is about as Celtic as they come but in the mind of a traveler, Wales generally plays second fiddle to its Celtic cousins in Ireland and Scotland. It's just not on their target from a travel point of view and I think it should be. We're joined today by a friend of mine who's a tour guide from Wales, Martin Delandovitz, and we're going to talk about what's distinctive about Welsh culture. Martin, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Rick. Give us a quick primer. How is Wales part of the UK, and what's its relationship with England and with its Celtic neighbours? Right. Britain is a geographical term. It's an island. It comprises England, Wales, and Scotland. And Wales, it's on the west, it's on the left-hand side. In size, it's about the size of Delaware, Uh or six Rhode Islands, and uh, it has only three million people. So it's not very big, and it's not very prominent. But legally, it's tighter to England than than Scotland or Ireland? The difference is that the King of Scotland, uh, James VI of Scotland, became the King of England, James I. And that's a true manager of kingdoms, uh-huh. a manager of the crowns, whereas Wales was much more of a shotgun marriage, do you understand? Okay, so yeah. uh, Scotland got on board with the UK with a little bit of its terms oh, yes. in consideration, but Wales, it was just like it or leave it, and you can't yeah. really leave it. That's right, yes. Let's say you go into a pub, and there's an Irishman, a Scottish guy, and a Welshman at the bar. How would you know which guy's from where? Well, it's a difficult one. And people think, oh, the Irishman will have red hair. There are more people with genetically the red-headed gene in Wales than there are in Ireland or in Scotland. 
The Welsh, I've said there are 3 million people, there are 9 million sheep in Wales. We have the highest proportion of sheep to people in the European Union. So when you walk into the bar, there'll be the Irishman and he'll be waving his shillelagh or whatever. There'll be the Scotsman wearing his kilt. Look for the man with three sheep. <laughs> because if there, if there are 9 million sheep and 3 million people, everybody's got to have three sheep. So look for the man <laughs> with the three sheep. And uh, coal... And you spend a long time in those dark mines. Well, now, now, here we go. Coal. I will give you the Rhondda Valley in South Wales. And it was coal in the south. Where I come from, in the north, it was slate. The Rhondda Valley, 1851, fewer than a 1,000 people lived in the Rhondda Valley. By 1901, so 1851 to 50 years, now there are 114,000 people living there and 115 coal mines. How many are there today? None. So the late half of the 19th century, coal was a big deal in Absolutely. South Wales. Yes. A valley yes. uh, north of Cardiff. Yes, the valleys. Okay, so you got sheep, you got coal, and that yes. was fueled by the Industrial Revolution. Absolutely. And then up in the north, you got slate. Slate. And if you think of London, Liverpool, Birmingham, Manchester, all with their lovely Welsh slate roofs, even Charleston in South Carolina was slated from Carnarvon, where I come is from. Is that right? It so is. North Wales provided slate for many of the roofs uh, around uh, beyond Britain, even. Yes. What's the deal with the Welsh culture and singing? Because I think of a Welshman as a choir man more than right. more than Scottish and Irish people. So, so the, what I've just said about the Rhondda Valley is symptomatic, or is, is is emblematic, if you like, of the industrialization and the urbanization of Wales in the 1800s and early 1900s. But as I've said to you, the coal mines have now gone. And the male voice choir, men coming together to sing, is a product of industrialization and urbanization. Well, now, as I've said, that industry has gone. And I'm going to tell you the truth. I hate telling the truth. Few young people sing in male voice choirs today. You know, that methodistical, chapel-going, coal-mine-working, tin bath in front of the fire, blackened coal That's all gone. It's all in the past. It's a myth. So for the younger generation, is that kind of settling with the old, dead-end life of a mine worker, and you just get some joy by singing, and they would rather not succumb to that? Is that kind of the generational I, challenge? Even when I was a kid, and I mean, I'm an old man, as you can see from across the table here, Rick. When I was a kid, it was the time of the Beatles. Right. And where I live, it's the most Welsh-speaking part of Wales, okay? But it was considered hick in the time of the Beatles to speak Welsh. Huh. And equally today, you know, you can talk about Welsh pop music groups, and that's what the younger people go for. They go for the, you know, the Welsh culture. Yes, and it is Welsh, and it's individual, but at the same time, it's almost part of a larger Western European culture. Okay, so well, Wales would probably embrace this whole um, European Union ethic of let's all celebrate and make a giant mixed salad. Parts of Wales. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Martin Delandovitz, and Martin is a friend and fellow tour guide from the north of Wales. We're talking about Welsh culture, and there's so much happening for travelers to Britain these days. And Martin, one thing that we were talking about just a second ago, which is kind of disconcerting to me because it big joy of traveling in Wales is going to the choir practices in any town, in the old days anyways, Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday in this or that town would be church choir practice night. And then the choir would go over to the pub across the street from the church and they'd have a few pints and they'd keep singing and tourists were welcome to sit in a circle and drink beer and sing with them. Is that still happening or is that something that's fading away, to be honest? Well, to be honest, it's fading away. A French friend of mine who wanted to send French visitors over to Wales, he said, find a place in uh, Carnarvon area where you can sing in pubs. And I walked into a pub, I, I have done that before, and uh, I said to some truly local people, I said, in Welsh, because that's what we speak, uh, where do they do singing in pubs? Everybody stared and said, 
good gosh, they suddenly realize we don't do it anymore. Now, the choir still exists, mm -hmm. and they do still practice, okay. and they do go into pubs. But it's not, it's almost as if in this modern way, we've given over public singing to the more professional people rather yeah. than enjoying it ourselves, you know. So the choirs are still there, but it's more of a um, straightforward, okay, we practice, we perform, we go home. And don't forget that Welsh is a great centre for modern music too, so that it's a changing scene, it's a changing scene. The language is what, where I live, holds it together, do you know? Hold the community yeah, together? It, it, it's, it's cement. A lot of the other sort of stereotypical things that Welsh people are supposed to do are things of the past. That's sort of counterintuitive. You'd think the language would be left aside as people would just embrace the big language of English, but the language remains oh, relatively so. strong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where I live, over 95% use it for all day and every day. Hmm. And, uh, and this is in North Wales. This is in Northwest Wales. People speaking Welsh. And if a tourist comes in, they may be oblivious to that because the local people will turn to the tourist and speak English. Yes. When the tourist is not there, it's Welsh. And as I well know from talking to you for so long, in heaven, they speak Welsh. That's right. In heaven, they do speak Welsh. So the language, is it something that the government pushes or is this an indigenous natural yearning to have their own language? Who's pushing the not only the survival but the growth of the old Welsh language in an island that is predominantly English? Right. I live in the northwest of Wales. It rains twice as much as it does, say, in London. Uh, the wind blows constantly. It is beautiful. I mean, you've been there, Rick. It is so beautiful. But it doesn't do you many favors. So if you live there, you've got to want to live there. And that's a great social cement. We think it's fine. We like it. We enjoy it. The other thing is that because it's, let's say, unforgiving, not many people come. So we've only got each other to speak to. So we speak Welsh. The, <laughs> the other thing that That's very logical, I guess. It is. It's such a God-forsaken corner that <laughs> people who stay there really want to be there. It is God, and they do want God-forsaken in a nice way. In a nice way. It's, it's, you know, to our post-romantic eyes, it is drop-dead gorgeous. The other thing is, uh, Scots Gaelic. 1% of the Scottish population speaks Scots Gaelic. Irish. 1% of the Irish population speaks Irish. 20% of the whole population of Wales speaks Welsh. 95% plus, 96, 97, where I live. And of the Celtic languages spoken in the British Isles, it is that most spoken. Because good Queen Elizabeth I, God bless her, had the Bible translated into Welsh. And so by the 1580s, we had an orthodox, an authorized version of our language. Huh. That was an exemplar. In the 1570s? 1580s. 1580s. Yes. Wow. I think, yeah. And, and it's still used today? I mean, you have, yes, you yes, have yes. the King James Version in England, you got the Martin Luther Version yes. in Germany, and you got the, the Queen Elizabeth Version. It is archaic, mm -hmm. but that throughout the centuries, people would say, well, this is, this is our language. It is written down. The, the Queen and subsequent kings, this is their version of our language. Is the Welsh language, um, how do you demonstrate what it sounds like to somebody like um, many of us who've never heard it before? Well, um, I would say, and I'm going to speak proper Welsh, not as politicians speak it. Well, Danny, instead of a man, Rick Borima, and in Sharadevi Gilly, that radio, we're sitting here today, Rick, together, and we're talking with one another on the radio. And that's what it sounds like. And people often think, oh, it's a dialect of English. No, it is not. Pandani Sharad, the comrade, Sharad, and Hoslova Hanol, but my sister, and Sharad. 
What did he just say? Uh, when we speak Welsh, we speak totally different to the English speak. <laughs> <laughs> There's no, no risk of that not happening. Uh, what's a key phrase I should know as a traveler in Wales? Well, the, the catch-all word is yawn, spelt I-A-W-N, E-A-U-N, yawn. Just say yawn. 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 Now, yawn is, I'm walking down the street, I meet you, and I will hold up my thumb in the, the affirmative, and I'll say, yawn! Are you okay? And you'll put up your thumb and go, yawn, reply. Hey, I like it. Let's, <laughs> let's try it. Yawn. Yawn. I'm there. You I'm in, I'm in <laughs> Carnarvon. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you're walking down the street. Is there a certain place that a traveler could go to best find the celebration of traditional Welsh language and culture? It's just south of where I live, I believe. I went with you there, Rick. There is the Welsh Language Learning Centre, the National Welsh Language Learning Centre, which is an old mm. granite quarry in town, isolated with the sea in front and the hill behind. So you, no phone mm. signal, no TV signal, nothing. And you can go there and do full courses in the Welsh language. It's a beautiful location. What town is that in? Llanelhirn. That's the double L. If you see the double L, that's yes. a... Yes. That's the biggest bugaboo when a traveler is trying to read a, a road sign or something. They see a double L. Uh, pronounce that again? It's S. You have to do it down to the one side of your mouth. S. You put the tip of the tongue on the roof of your mouth, just behind and touching the front teeth, and expel S. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Martin Delandov. And we're talking Welsh culture. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and John is calling in from Cleveland. John, thanks for your call. Yes, so I'm going to be traveling to Wales with my family this year. Uh, my son is only eight months. He'll be about a year when we travel, and I'm wondering if there are any little kid-friendly ways to experience Welsh culture. Specifically, my wife is going to be at an artist residency in Corris, so I'm not completely familiar with uh, the geography, but I know it's somewhere in the northwest in between where you are and Snowdonia National Park. So I'm just looking for some general recommendations along those lines. Well, do you know, in that area, Snowdonia National Park, so you've got mountains. They're not big mountains, but they're the biggest we've got, so you just have to stick with those. And lots of lovely walks. And then 20 minutes from the mountains, you're at the seaside. One of the things that I used to take my kids to, I had two daughters there, they're old and in their 20s now, over on Anglesey, which if you're in Snowdonia, it's only 45 minutes. The sea zoo, you know, it's just all native wildlife. And the can, sea zoo? The sea zoo, and they got all the, you oh, know, nice. all the fish and things that you see. In the, and my kids used to love that. And just sort of just messing around in this beach is going and look in the rock pools, and then you can find the little crabs and so on yourself. Mm. The slate industry up in the mountains by Llamberis, produces some really weird environments. You know, these great holes that were carved out of the mountain and now are just so silent and so nowadays often full of water. So there's that lovely blend of the the mountain and the sea all within half an hour of one another. So for a kid, oh, it's wonderful sights, beautiful sights. When I was thinking of John's question about with a small child things to do in North Wales, there's a garden. What's the famous garden? Oh, Bodnant. Bodnant Garden is just a glorious oh, natural... It is. It's like a giant, somebody's lovely yard to play in. There's a steam train, which yes, kids several. who like steam trains... There, isn't there a famous one that goes up Mount Snowdon? There's one that goes up Snowdon, then right. There's one that goes from Carnarvon to Port Maddog. And these are narrow-gauge? Yeah, narrow-gauge, one foot eleven and, and they a still, quarter. they just... Yeah, that's right. steam, and it just takes you back 100 years. And there's that Coney Island resort that Americans don't even know about, just next to Conway. Oh, Llandudno. Llandudno. It's, got a, it's yeah. got a pier you can go out and, yeah. and you can get the candy floss, which yeah. is cotton candy and caramel-covered apples and yeah. all sorts of really fun traditions that just kids go wild. And 
if you want to give your kid a little medieval history education, the town of Conway has that wonderful old house, which is, you go through there and it's like you oh, stepped yeah, into somebody's smile. house. Oh, down on the pier, there's all the other kids catching Catching crabs, crabs yeah, yeah. Ev, all the parents bring their kids down to the pierhead. To catch crabs. And they've got their all their gear, and it's yeah. so simple. Yeah. And they're just yanking in the crabs and uh, torturing them and then they're tossing them, them back go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if the parent is happy, the child is happy, and vice versa. Hey, there you go, John. Does that help you? That sounds great. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good time. Thanks. Welsh native son Martin Delandovitz is with us on Travel with Rick Steves. He's sharing what it means to be Welsh and offering advice on how visitors can enjoy a real taste of Wales today. We're at 877-333-7425. And you can reach us by email at radio at ricksteves.com. Joanne's calling from Seattle. Hi, Joanne. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Martin. Hello, hello. Yes, um, my family surname is, and I'll massacre the pronunciation, but it's Llewellyn. Yeah, yeah. And we, uh, of course, assume because of our last name that we're a direct descendant of the last Prince of Wales. That was from Wales. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we would love to go back and dig a little further into our genealogy. And the most that we've ascertained is kind of in the Aberdare, Powys area, that kind of thing. But we'd love to know if we really wanted to go and dig into the history of Llewellyn Ap is that how you pronounce yeah, it? Yeah, Llewellyn Ap Yorith and Llewellyn Ap Griffith was the, the last last, as it were. Yes, so yeah. if we wanted to go and really dig into that history and see the castles, the battlefields, maybe cemeteries, that kind of thing, what would you suggest as a basic little well, itinerary? Right, uh, firstly, digging into your past, the lovely Watchtower Press has produced a wonderful book called A List of Migrants from Wales to the United States of America. It is in four volumes, and there's an index volume. The research on that book is meticulous. You have to go to a very good library to get it. Maybe it's online. And if it is known, demonstrable, or provable, it's in that book. Hmm. So don't waste your money sending some professional genealogist to find your ancestry. If it's in that book, it's provable. Secondly... Wales has, and I'm talking about castles now. I'm not talking about, ooh, look at that, isn't this a nice castle? If you're really into castles, Wales is the place to go. South Wales, Chepstow, the oldest stone-built castle in Britain, Pembroke, birthplace of Henry VII, and so on. North Wales, those great castles built by Edward I, fantastic. Mm. And so that if you're into that historical thing, North or South Wales, and, you know, I'm from North Wales, and I would tell you, and Rick will tell you, beautiful place. South Wales, beautiful place. So Mm -hmm. there is more than enough choice. North or South, middle is a little intractable, an upland plateau cut by deep, steep valleys. There you go, Joanne. I hope that gives you some good ideas. Definitely. Thank you so much. Uh, Happy travel. Thanks for your call. Enjoy yourself, Joanne. Bye. Bye. Martin, this is so fun talking about Wales. And let's just close it with, uh, you're traveling around the United States now. When you get back home and you get to your hometown, you drop in the pub, what are you going to hear? What are you going to smell? Who are you going to see? I see people that uh, I know. And, do you know, very sociable scene, the pub scene. Wales is right up there. So that going to the pub isn't a matter of drinking. It's a matter of social interaction. It's not, there's nothing like the British pub atmosphere. Hmm. And Welsh is peculiarly Welsh, and you go into pubs and you speak Welsh.
So when you go home, that's the way you can re- reconnect with your community. You, you know you'll have people you can talk with. There's a conviviality oh, yeah, in the yeah, club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. not going there for a gastronomic experience. You can fill the tank. Food's good. No, food is good. Yep. What do people eat? We eat soups and stews. And because we've got lots of sheep, we Okay, eat so soups and stews, speak <laughs> a little Gaelic and check in with your neighbors. Absolutely. Right. Martin Delandovitz, you make me want to go back to Wales. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ray. Another destination that can teach us a lot about what it takes to live together is Bosnia-Herzegovina. Guides from Bosnia join us next to take your calls at 877-333-7425 and tell us what you'll find in their country on the Balkan Peninsula. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. It's been a generation now since ethnic war followed the breakup of Yugoslavia and turned the world's focus on Bosnia. A few scars on the buildings might still serve as a history lesson when you tour the region. But today's nation of Bosnia-Herzegovina is a destination where scenic villages, rugged natural beauty, and stories from the crossroads of southeastern Europe will make you glad to get acquainted with this sector of the Balkans. We have two guides from Bosnia joining us in our Travel with Rick Steves studio right now to share what their Bosnian heritage means to them today. Amir Telebacirovic is a journalist who was raised in Sarajevo and survived the siege, which started on his 19th birthday in 1992. Today, Amir leads tours of Bosnia and the Adriatic. San Almaric was raised in the small town of Stolac in southern Bosnia-Herzegovina and was just a child when war broke out around him. Today, he works with youth in his area to help break down lingering ethnic divisions, and he also works as a tour guide in his home country. Amir and Sanal, we're glad to have you with us. Thank you for getting us here. Jack, it's great to be here. When we think about Bosnia, we think, uh, Amir, Bosnia-Herzegovina, mm-hmm. or Bosnia. Is one correct and one not correct, or, or what does that mean? They're both correct, actually. Mm-hmm. Our official name is uh, historically not that old, like since the sometimes late 19th century, Bosnia-Herzegovina. But we're not talking about two regions or countries pulled together. It's Bosnia and Herzegovina presented the southern region. It has a Germanic name, Herzeg, named after one duke. So it's the same place? It's not two different places? It's the same place, and there is no state border when you drive from one to another. Technically, Bosnia is north, Herzegovina is south. So uh, the people of Herzegovina have their own local pride a little bit. We can say so, but it's more about geography. Okay. Now, we hear the word Bosnian and Bosniak. Yes. Mm -hmm. So now, what is the difference with that? That's something that actually bothered me for quite some time because I couldn't figure out, as you travel a lot, as we do in our job, you know, you wonder what kind of identity pops up first when you're meeting some people. Is it going to be American first or is it going to be Californian, Texan, you know, what's the identity? But in Bosnia, it's pretty much all about nationality. Mm -hmm. So after the war, Yugoslavia, when Yugoslavia break apart, we were kind of considered to be Bosnia is Yugoslavia within Yugoslavia because we had all the nations within. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, you have a term such as Mm Bosnian-Croat, Bosnian-Serb, and Bosniak, which represents the Bosnian Muslims. Oh, so the Bosniak would be the Muslim Muslim population. Yeah. Okay, because you have the very complicated reality that this is where Islam and Christendom come together. Mm -hmm. In fact, Mostar is the greatest tourist town, I think, in the area. And they've got that beautiful pointed bridge. And to me, that always was a symbol of the East and the West connecting. I understand in your language you actually have some words that help us understand the unique characteristic of, of your 
sort of the vibe to yeah. be in Bosnia. Raya, is that the word? Raya. Raya, what does that mean? Raya means, you know, a gang of people, a group of people that's hanging out. And you never let anybody to, you know, look at you from a higher distance. They're always pulling you down. You know, you have to be equal. You have to be equal in respect of everybody else. You cannot be celebrity in Raya. You so know, to be just a common, you know. You go home, you could be a famous musician or yeah. a famous uh, politician or businessman. You come back to your friends, your old school You're friends. Just, I'm just Sanel from the neighborhood, you know. There's no just another, another guy. guy. One of the things a lot of uh, American celebrities are coming to Bosnia because they feel that nobody's chasing them, nobody's screaming. They're just... Is that the way it is on the streets? You won't, yeah, I mean, pretty there's, much. Oh, nobody, he's, the, nobody, he's the president of Bosnia. Just nobody's going to scream after like you or call you. Yeah, it's, like it's cool. That. It's cool. I think there's a little bit of that in um, Slovenia also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of a Balkan thing. It's a Balkan yeah. thing, yeah. Hey, Amir, when you go to Bosnia, there's another word that's interesting, chafe. Yeah. Chafe. Tell okay, me about that. Uh, let's play a little etymology. It comes from the Persian word kaif. Chafe is more like Slavic pronunciation, the same uh-huh. word, which, as we figured out by now, can be translated easily. But that's unique feeling when you get into that. Or it can be described, for example, like uh, you feel like doing something. Even if it's against all, all odds, if you feel like, like it's breaking a wall with your head, but you just feel you want to do it. You just chief, feel like you want to achieve. So you've got this personality it, quirk, and if you want to hit your head against the wall, that's just his yes. chafe. But it's not rebellion. It's not about being a rebellious. If somebody tells you you can do it, could be something simply that moment it's your chafe, your specific feeling you need to, you feel like you need to do that, even if it doesn't make sense always. Sometimes it does, sometimes it does not. So people give people the flexibility or the freedom to be individuals? Yeah. Is that what that is? Does it show yes. itself in little things like how you drink your coffee or something like yes. that? Yes. How do you drink your coffee? How do you drink other stuff? Even how do you eat? How you make your coffee? What's mm-hmm. another uh, chafe? Cigarette. Chafe. Well, <laughs> cigarette. Coffee yeah. and cigarette often go hand by hand back So home. people might say cigarette's not healthy. Yeah, you say, we yeah, all know We know that. that. We all know that. But it's there. It's deeply incorporated into our culture. The entire word chafe kind of a, goes around it because when you sit somewhere outside in a beautiful sunny day, you know, and you've done all you need to do and you're drinking your Bosnian coffee and having a cigarette, that's all there is, you know. It's just enjoying it, soaking the sun. And if you are in mood to have some company, great. If not, please don't disturb my chief. Another word, um, merak? Merak. That's just a feeling like when you're eating something. When you're eating something. Like, like when you're eating something that you know it's not good for you. Right. But you still, you're fully enjoying it. You know, you're so still, there's you no guilt. Care. There's no guilt trip. There is no guilt trip. You're no, just. No. This so is like you can't be on a diet when you're facing this beautiful baklava. Yeah, there you go. It could be collective feeling, not just one person. Merak uh, can refer to entire. For example, here uh, we, there are three of us here. We can feel merak. You know, like yeah. kind of like we are relaxed spontaneously. Okay, so it's like sort of a communing together. Yes, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be appointed. You don't say like let's uh, have a merak tomorrow at eight o'clock. It should come spontaneously, of course. This feels like it has very, very deep roots and it's something that you can sort of relate to each other. And when you get home, you're probably glad to be back at that. Yeah. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sanel Meric and we're talking with Amir Telebicerovic. We're talking about Bosnia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Elizabeth is calling from Nashville in Tennessee. Elizabeth, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you? We're doing great. Do you have a comment for Sanel or Amir? Let's see here. I've been to Bosnia a couple of times now. I'm from Nashville, born and raised, and has married my husband. 
who is originally from Bozonsky Broad, which is north. So we've been a couple of times. It's just a wonderful place. And now we have a little boy who is six years old and becoming very curious about where Dad is from. And we're just sort of learning how we explain how Dad got here, why Dad doesn't live in Bosnia anymore. So I don't know if you have any experience, if your guest has any experience of that sort of story. So you, your husband left during the war there? Yes. Okay, so now she's, they've got a son, and he's wondering about the story of Bosnia. Of course, he'll, he'll want to know the story of his father, but also yes. what is happening today in, in Bosnia. How are things between the sects? I mean, the reality is people's fathers may have been shooting each other, and uh, today we have, uh, I would hope, Marek. Yeah, it would be good for um, any American who wants to understand Bosnia to separate two things, cause and consequence of those wars. So it's true, we do have some kind of, as you would call it, like sectarian tensions in some parts of the country. Not to this day. To still. this day, yes. Mm-hmm. But there's yeah, consequences of the war. They were never caused. It's important to know that difference. At the same time, we have places that were affected by war, but ordinary people of so-called different sects or whatever we call them continue to coexist together like nothing ever happened. In other words, it's not black and white situation. We have both, you know, like uh, areas with segregation, which are more political thing than sectarian, and areas when really ordinary, I'm talking mostly about ordinary people, okay. I cannot speak for the politicians, they need to speak for themselves. Ordinary people coexist normally like nothing ever happened, which depends from region to region of the country. This is so complicated for an American to imagine uh, because, you know, we have a divided country, but we don't know what division is until we talk yeah, to people who have been well, fighting like this. But if, if I can add, I was a, a 10-year-old kid at the time that everything happened, you know, and uh, from my perspective, I put a lot of effort back home. I work with youth to try to prevent all this bad energy that took place in our country some 25 years ago to be passed to new generations because how can you blame a kid who was 10 years old who was on some other side for the you know wrongdoings of our fathers mm-hmm. so we really need to start working on that to creating a normal society for all of us and i think it's very important to talk with your kids it's really important to let them know the full story of course when time comes but now I would really advise you to just ease them into the story of Bosnia, what it is, you know, we, a lot of people from Bosnia was displaced all around the world. Mm-hmm. A lot of us returned. I was a refugee for almost nine years, but I was a refugee in my own country. So there are still a lot of people who build their entire life And when, when we think of the sectarian um, sides of the conflict where there was so much bloodshed, was it basically... It's dangerous to say religion, but it was ethnic groups based on the heritage of their religion. So you would have Muslims, uh, Orthodox, and Christian Christian Catholics. And within Bosnia, you had those three communities. Yeah, and smaller community of Jews. Of Jews. And today, a generation later, is it fair to say everybody was at fault or somebody was more at fault than others? Well, the things are still being determined. There is international courts that are prosecuting people who are in charge, you know, but the painful reality is we will have to face it one day, you know, we will all have to sit and make peace with it, what happened. So far, I think all three or four sides have their own truths of their what own, happened. The way they see it, their own context. That, that, that's, that's and it. that survives to this day. It, it does, in, in certain extent. So is the solution for peace not looking for blame, but just saying, let's look forward and let's learn from the past? Yeah, as far I as... think it's very important. Enough time has passed. We, mm-hmm. we have grown mm-hmm. so much. 
And I think it's fair enough to say we are ready to sit down and to have an honest face-to-face, you know, let's check the reality. Let's see what happened there. So, Elizabeth, are you going to take your family back to Bosnia? We try to go back probably every three years. We still have um, my husband's grandmother. Both grandmothers are still over there and some other families. So, yes, we try to go back every few years. And do you find that there's a, a comfortableness and a, an easygoingness, or is there still an edge and there's sort of a hair-trigger uh, violence ready to erupt? I would say more of the first, um, but my husband's experience, I would say, is probably different than my experience. Sarajevo, for instance, has changed a lot. The first time I was there was in '07, and we went back... Um, it's been a year and a half ago now, and it's very different there. There are a lot more tourists, a lot more people speaking English, so it was an easier place to navigate. Does it feel more affluent and and, uh, enjoyable from a tourist point of view? Oh, yes, very much. And I had an advantage as well. We had some of um, my husband's old schoolmates that had stayed during the war and lived there, and so we got to have that experience too and be in their homes and go to the good restaurants that only his friends knew about and that sort of thing, a little off the beaten path. So that was nice. Elizabeth, thanks for your call. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring Bosnian identity. Nearly 25 years after complicated inter-ethnic fighting tore at the heart of the Balkan Peninsula in the former Yugoslavia. Our guides, Sanel Maric and Amir Telebacerovic, are telling us what it means to them to be Bosnian today. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Alan is calling from Voorheesville in New York. Alan, thanks for your call. Thank you for taking my my question. I've been fascinated with Bosnia ever since I uh, first read Ivo Andrich uh, when I was a teenager, and I'm I'm not a spring chicken. And uh, I finally had a chance to uh, travel there in 2015. It was a, a great trip. I really enjoyed being there, especially talking to the people. I'd like to know if there's any contemporary media books, the novels, movies that uh, give a good sense of what uh, Bosnia is today and uh, the Bosnian character and people. First of all, you, you were reading Ivo Andrich and his, his novels, and, and both Sanel and Amir shook their heads. What does Ivo Andrich mean to you, Sanel? Well, he was one of our well-known writer. He was Nobel Prize winner mm-hmm. for that particular book. So um, you feel a little bit of pride as soon as you hear somebody in America reading these novels. Bridge on the Drina River? Yeah. Drina is a natural boundary between Serbia and Bosnia. Ah, the so the bridge would have been right mm-hmm. on the front. And it's mm-hmm. still, even in the 60s, the book deals with a um, heavy situation yeah. in, in the area. So Alan, what was your takeaway from Ivo Andrich's book? Well, it was. Uh, it struck me as a society in which people of very different backgrounds were able to get along in, in communities and were able to come together in times of crisis. Uh, I've also read uh, The Bosnian Story, which takes place in Travnik, which was also fascinating, too, because it was from the perspective of uh, French diplomats during the Napoleonic period. It's a great novel. Anybody thinking of going to Bosnia should really read oh, okay. it. Now, Alan's question was, is there any other books or, or documentaries or, or movies that you would recommend for people who may be traveling to Bosnia and that'll give them a better yeah. context? If you like graphic novels, okay, I'm deliberately not using word comic books, so I'm not talking about Spider-Man and Batman, but graphic novels. There is a work of Joe Sacco, uh, S-A-C-C-O, his second name. Uh, he wrote excellent, it's his masterpiece, called Seferia Gorajde. Then The Fixer, also named uh, Story of Sarajevo, during the war and currently. The Fixer. The Fixer, yes. Uh, also graphic novel, also from Joe Sacco, also in English. 
and uh, also since Alan, if since you like uh, Bridge and Dina River, you may like the author Mesha Selimovic, who was also one of the best writer ever in Southern Slavic languages. Two books called The Death and Dervish and The Fortress. The you Death can, yeah. and Dervish. Right, I read The Fortress. Okay, you. so you know what I'm talking about, and you can find them on Amazon, and that can help you. And for documentaries. I would recommend you The Love of Books, Sarajevo Love of Books, uh, the story of the people who were risking their own life under sniper fire to save one of the oldest uh, and the great, greatest libraries, ancient libraries in Sarajevo. Called The Love of Books. The Love of Books. A documentary. It's made, made by BBC, yeah. Sanel. And I would just add something that was very fascinating and it's very intriguing to see HBO's documentary on um, Houston, We Have a Problem, which deals with uh, how Tito sold uh, space program to United States and mainly it was filmed in Bosnia because we had the biggest base there and all this what was happening it was so fascinating to see they did a very good job that sounds interesting and they they used quite a lot of original footage from Nixon Tito so you have pretty much a very nice mix there what was see. the connection with Tito and our our space program Yugoslavia had a space program, uh-huh. and we were talking about the time that we had a race with U.S. Yeah. and Russia, and, right. you know, of course... And Yugoslavia you, was the bridge, in some ways, was, between Washington and Moscow. The first liner in front of the Cold Wall there, and uh, they took advantage to, you know, sell something that wasn't tested. Okay. And Americans were kind of furious when they tried it and failed. Oh, no. Houston, yeah. we've got a problem. Ellen, thanks for your call. Well, thank you very much. But, but by the way, the best baklava I've had was in Sarajevo. Hey, that's, <laughs> that's good to hear. <laughs> All right. You need to go to Mostar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank All right. you very much. Thank, thank you, you, Alan. Mostar and Sarajevo, two great cities, wonderful, wonderful historic and cultural centers in Bosnia. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Amir Telebicharovic and Sanel Maric. Amir and Sanel, I know that uh, Bosnia is known for its humor. It's kind of dark humor. Yeah, it is. It is. And with your heritage, um, it's understandable. Politically incorrect, actually. So politically, Is there a little bit of Bosnian humor you can share with us as we close our discussion? There is, there is but um, I, I don't know much about uh, where are the limits of the political correctness here. Can I, you know? can I try? Yeah. It, it, you can... It's not offensive to anybody. So we had a flood mm-hmm. two years ago, which was really bad one. So just to show you the spirit of Bosnian. And, you know, news reporters all over the country trying to film, save people, you know. And there was a one guy sitting on a first floor of his balcony everything's gone and he wrote a sign beware of sharks <laughs> you know usually our people flip you know you lose everything that you had yeah. but he was like what can i do what can i do and he made this gigantic sign just to joke about it beware of sharks bosnian humor <laughs> when, when everything is going wrong well let's make a joke what can like, do? Yeah, yeah during the war the uh, people are wondering why there was a lack of interest of international community UN etc in intervening in Bosnia stopping the war and uh, ethnic cleansing and so many bad things that happened and then we came to conclusion Bosnia is the only country that has certain Muslim population but without oil without oil, oil. Yeah. <laughs> there was no so interest there was no interest in it, right no, yeah. no oil involved <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves we've been talking about Bosnia with Sanel Maric and Amir Talibicharovic thanks both of you for that insight into your country thank you for thank having you. us Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan Wolner. our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and our theme music is by Jerry Frank You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. 
Rick also has an app for your mobile phone with self-guided walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.